Philippus FM. This program was recorded June 11th, 2021 with David Paris. How do we know each other and is there a story you remember of our first meeting or I guess a first impression you had? Yeah, I was like, all right, here's a nice guy, he's younger than the other people I've worked. We did a podcast called Broken Bulbs, and at first I was just like uh super excited by the concept you had for it, and I thought, "Oh my god, this is great." And then we had some amazing amazing intimate stories that came out. Yeah. So I just felt I felt connected to you, man, like even though like yeah, it's really it's really good experience. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 glad you enjoyed it too cuz I mean I I interview a ton of people, right? And and I I think I always enjoy it. There are very few, you know, recordings I've done where I'm like, "Ah, that was fine." You know, but when I when I talked with you, I I wasn't sure what to expect going into it, reading through your form and everything. I was like, "I wonder, you know, what the presentation of these stories is going to be like." And then when we chatted, I was like, "I just like I like this guy. You know, like it was one of those moments where it's like, yeah, you know, you kind of vibe with somebody, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I felt the vibe and and because of that, yeah, these just afterwards I was just like, I feel whole again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of cool, you know. Yeah, it it's it's really fulfilling and I hope that we can kind of uh get a similar feeling out of out of this conversation to kind of hearing and sharing your experience here. I I like that. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. I'm your host Alex Williams and today I'm joined by David Paris. I really know nothing about David. I just really enjoyed our conversation on and around our recordings of Broken Bulbs. Now, if you'd like to hear those other stories that he tells, go check out episode 123 of Broken Bulbs. There will be a couple more episodes with David on Broken Bulbs too. They've just yet to come out. And remember, to make 5 minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. Where are you from originally growing up and then now? Yeah man, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Brooklyn. Um I was walking the streets of Bedford and Midwood and uh had we played street ball. <laughs> we played uh you know stick ball. It was that whole the, the whole uh what what you see in the movies in the 70s and 80s. That that was my life. I went to college at Hampshire in Massachusetts and it's a hippie school. and uh it was just cuz i didn't get into any other good schools <laughs> they they accepted me probably cuz i was different than everybody else and uh then i got to teach for america i had a choice to go to the west coast or or back to new york and my mother offered me um some money so i said all right i'm come back to new york <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, i I've, i've lived here ever since so like you know i travel a lot i've been to 26 different countries and 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 to me the the biggest travel is going from brooklyn to manhattan you know when you're a new yorker it takes an hour to get anywhere and a little bit more with some train delays so uh yeah i'm 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 the real thing half the people here have left and half the people that are now here weren't born here um and you always know who was here and who wasn't by by the edge they have on them. <laughs> they have that if they're too nice you know they're not born. <laughs> so yet. with me you'd probably know right away. I'd be like, "Hi, you know." <laughs> right away. It's instantly, instantly. I worked with this acrobatic couple for their wedding dance yesterday and I was just like, uh, "Yeah, so when'd you move here?" They're like, "How did you know?" I'm like, "Come on, you're so nice, please." <laughs> you know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. 
I yeah, and I can't I can't wait to come visit. You can uh, you can you can be my edge. We will. You don't need. Yeah, you just need to be with somebody from New York. With these days, things things here are very different. It's very safe, and people aren't as edgy as they used to. And it's better. It's a better life. I remember I, I was walking into uh, Blockbuster when it first came out. I guess this was like. 1994, and the moment you walk in, they say, "Hey, how you doing?" And I was like, "What the fuck you looking at?" <laughs> like this, <laughs> and like it was so odd to have this like kind culture, but Blockbuster was the first taste of like non-New York life being put in New York, and it was, I welcomed it. I was like, "Oh, they're just checking me out and saying hi," and uh, I was like, "All right, man, what new releases you have?" You know. And um, it was an adjustment and a welcome adjustment. Some people complain about gentrification, cultural change, but I, I think the kindness is is definitely a, a welcome addition. Addition. David Paris, welcome to My Wax Museum. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, man. Nice to meet you, and and excited for this uh, interview. Yeah, I'm I'm stoked for this interview. We were talking beforehand about you being from New York City. I think you are the second, maybe third guest I've had from actually from New York City. And so why don't you tell me a little bit what your experience was growing up there? Yeah, it's New York City is both a blessing and curse. In some ways, at the very earliest ages, um, you have people who are very upfront. They'll tell you exactly what they're thinking. But that can also be a problem because kids, people don't like you. They'll suddenly want to fight you. So at a very early age in Brooklyn, people would just start fights for no reason at all. Sometimes you, you might have stepped on their foot or sometimes. And this is like I'm talking about elementary school. Um, and I'm serious. I'm totally serious. So um, it was at the very early age you learn you have to fight for yourself. And I went to a middle school in Spanish Harlem. Probably one of my best experience. I, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, Jewish Irish neighborhood, and the middle school I went to was a combination of kids from Spanish Harlem and the kids from the Upper West Side, which is the upper middle class um, neighborhood in, in Manhattan. And in it, we all partied and did all the wrong things all together, and that also opened me up to um, the beautiful experience of connecting to all races that you don't get any, you don't get, uh, I don't think in other cities and the cultural mix. Um, then also when I went to high school, it was the same thing. We had, uh, my favorite situation was on the football team where you had people from all around the world, just like smashing into each other every day. And there's a bond when you go to war together, uh, football was like war for us. That, that to me helped shape a connection to people of all of all races. That's great. Some of the tough things is you could die a lot. I, I have almost been killed multiple times by being the wrong place at the wrong time. Just uh, my, my first encounter was with two different gangs that um, we were having a party in the football fields and they two, two gangs came to beat up everybody and they targeted me because I, you know, to some degree, I look back and I, I my sister was a punk rocker in the 80s back then you know when you wore uh if you look different you were attacked and she cut my hair with a punk haircut she gave me an earring and back then that meant instantly people just wanted to beat you up <laughs> just just for that it's very very different era yeah but i love my sister and i looked up to her and i i thought i want to be alternative so i did i had two earrings i had this punk haircut in the early in the mid 80s um and that meant when the two gangs came to like find somebody they found me and uh we 
yeah, it was a long chase for a good hour through train tracks, through uh, stores, and 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 finally the cops came, and uh, I learned a little bit about white privilege in that moment because uh, it, it, I know that. Um, when the cops came, they wanted to see, you know, were there weapons? They're like, no, there are no weapons. And they were going to leave me. I was like, you can't leave me. And I, I grabbed the cop and he threw me against the uh, uh, store and said, and was like, yeah, you can't touch me. I don't think if I was white, that would have happened. I would have been arrested, you know. And it's, it's interesting. You grow up, you grow up with a, a cultural perspective of people's different experiences. Like amongst my, my best friend was black in middle school and my other best friend was Puerto Rican, you know, and we'd hear a loud, loud bang. I was like, huh, what's that? Meanwhile, they would duck, <laughs> you know? And so like, I'm talking about an era and, you know, it was dangerous for me. It was even more dangerous for them. So I grew up in this kind of environment where you were just always looking over your shoulder at night. Um, but mind you, I didn't stay home. I was out to two or three in the morning as well. You know, most Friday, Saturday nights, we would find the, you know, back then you could you could do whatever you wanted at 13, 14, and nobody would question you when you go into the clubs. And uh, in fact, they would encourage you to come in. And um, it was a, it was a wild era. Interesting, interesting. So that's how you got this edge you you were talking about in in our questions beforehand. Yeah, definitely. I think I had the edge, and I was being primed for it. You know, I could have been sheltered and such, but you know, my mother she 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 lived a wild life. Life, and she wanted me to have that as well. Yeah, she fought my sister not to go out, but I was the third of four. By the time I wanted a party, she she gave up. <laughs> and uh, and it was good. Like I saw, you know, when people, it's interesting because when people go to college, they'll say a lot that they're looking for a life to party, but New Yorkers already did it. So when I went to college, I went to a hippie school and I actually found a small group of people that already uh, was had a crazy life. And then we were interested in just discovering what does it mean to be a, to eat raw foods? Uh, what was it like? Uh, you, we live, you could only leave when you hug everybody in the house, you know, that you were in. And, and we were looking for uh, a non, you know, what does it mean to be spiritual and connected to each other? And that was a hip, it was Hampshire college. It's a little harder now, but it was way, way easy. Then I had a sense of, huh, I need to find, um, at the, you know, in, in high school, I was interested in just partying and, and being a football player. Something shifted. I fell in love. And I also had a sense, you know, there's something more to this world. There's something spiritual. So when I went to college, I studied religion. I was like, I know I'm going to find something special in the world. There's something behind this material world. And um, eventually I went to India and, and studied with some spiritual masters. And I discovered... I am just horrible at meditating. <laughs> I'm just horrible at like staring at the same thing and focusing. Um, and this whole desire for something with people was really just a desire for connection. And that's when I discovered I wanted to be a teacher. It's funny. I went to India to, I went to India to find some spiritual truth. And really what I found is there is no truth. And what I'm interested or not for me at least. And what I really want is just uh, to connect to others. What better way to do that than be a teacher? I joined, uh, I did my, I came back, I did my final um, paper in uh, multicultural education, and the sociology of knowledge. And I was thinking if we could just look at life as um, having multiple perspectives, we could understand people more and then the world would be better. Very naive, but <laughs> very, uh, very late, <laughs> early 90s uh, optimism. 
and then I joined Teach for America. I went into the South Bronx and uh, did three years in one of the worst schools um, in the city, uh, the highest homeless shelter population. And I grew up for sure. Uh, I think if anybody wants to learn maturity, you should teach and um, teach in a rough, teach with a in a rough area with rough kids because they need you to be at your very best because if you're not they're going to tear you apart <laughs> i remember you know i had my first uh, that first year i had a kid who uh, got arrested for armed robbery another for prostitution and this was sixth grade man <laughs> this was like not even these kids were like yeah and this was a tough group my god and uh you know i i learned pretty fast that if i'm not on top of my game and had this weird combination of love, but also being tough, they would walk all over me. Because if you're too tough, they're used to that. And they're gonna be like, ah, oh, whatever. And if you're too soft, oh, they're gonna have a good time. And <laughs> so uh, I did grow up pretty fast those first few months. That started my journey into teaching. I'm still teaching 28 years later. And um, I realized that I think you only asked one question. I kept going. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it because I, I get to hear, you know, your thought process and, and just like the experiences that come to mind without my, you know, poking and prodding. I get to hear just, yeah, you know, obviously teaching is important to you. Obviously the relationships you have is important to you. You know, what is the best meal you've ever had? A best meal I've ever had, I would say my mother, my mother had a, was very good at cooking lasagna. And over time, it was just because Garfield loved lasagna and she wasn't a good cook, but she, we knew we loved Garfield and we knew we loved, he loved lasagna. So we asked her to make it and she did. And in, in her own way, that was her way of showing love and, and care. I, I kind of want to get more into this idea of, you know, being tough, but not too tough and, you know, being soft, but not too soft. How, how do you balance that? How do you, how do you behave as, as a teacher in a way that, that, you know, maintains that balance? Yeah, I think there's like nine or 10 things to say when you work with a tough group. I remember um, I, I had my best education workshop came from a trans teacher who uh, uh, in, in back in those days, being trans was like, you know, that, that was rare. And, and she was very open about it. And I say she's trans because she was flamboyant and her flamboyance, she used everything to her uh, advantage. So she put on a show. And when she put on the show, the kids, you know, uh, when you put on a better show than the kids can put on, they're going to, they, they're used to TV, they're into it, you know? And so uh, some situations, and what she taught me, she said, you know, the old, Kenny Rogers song, we have to know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. And like every situation is going to be different. And you can't, you don't learn it until you mess up and go, oh, I was too forceful in that moment. Or, oh, I needed to be the leader in the class. I need to put a behavior that's not quite right and put it to a level of, of, of uh, hey, this is inappropriate. And it was hard for me because I was a kid who was messing around myself. I barely made it through uh, high school. So I found some of the things the kids did funny. So I have to like bite the side of my cheek in my early 20s so I wouldn't crack up when I see something. And, uh, you know, back then it was a tough balance. I took a course uh, called uh, Lee Cantor's uh, Assertive Discipline, where he would teach, you know, you can just state what, you, what is, you don't engage in arguments, you're not aggressive, you're not passive, you just find that middle. And 
in it, it's funny that now I teach communication in middle school um, as that's my full-time job. But uh, back then, I didn't get any training in communication of what it means to be assertive and not too aggressive. And so you really have to check yourself. And some of the behaviors you see, our brain tells us, if we see something wrong, yell. You know, if we yell, it'll get things done. And you learn very fast as a teacher, you might get five to 10 minutes of quiet the first time you yell, but it doesn't last long and it doesn't last near, isn't nearly as effective the more you use it. And uh, so it, to find that right balance of how to, how to find the assertive is to sometimes to back away, sometimes to be strong, uh, know that each kid's a little different. When kids complain, it's not quite fair. You say, yeah, uh, you're right. And it's just sometimes we have to do it this way, um, taking deep breaths. And it's it's really why um, I always say that, you know, teaching is an amazing job. But if you teach in a rough school, it's underpaid for sure, because the, the, the amount of emotional work it takes to craftily teach kids who are really struggling, um, it's not easy. Thinking, thinking back, was, was there a moment where, where you said, yeah, this is what I want to do for the next 28 years? Like, this is what I want to be? <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's a, I love that. I didn't have one moment. I knew that when I was in India, I, I decided I wanted to do it. And the moment I started it, I knew that it was, it was a calling, maybe because it was the only thing I was good at. <laughs> Partly, I wasn't really good at doing anything else. You know, I remember some friends saying, yo, yo, you got to get into programming and all this other stuff. You'll make a hundred grand or something. I was like, man, I don't have the attention for that stuff, but I'm really good. I love kids. And there's something about when you have a natural love and not judgmental, like the teachers that struggle the most are those that don't grow up in New York and come with a very, uh, they come with a very judgmental attitude. Kids can read it in a second. Perhaps it's racism, perhaps it's classism, perhaps it's just, you know, when, when you approach a kid like, oh, you should do this, um, they, if the kid's not doing it, that should world doesn't, doesn't work. But if you do it from a place of love and choice um, and, and wanting for what's best for them, you're, you're, you, you, can, you can go much further. Um, so there wasn't a time where I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. It was that moment in India. But I always enjoyed it. It's it's really it's really a pleasure, and a challenge, that I that I that I still, you know, part of it is every year I get a little better, <laughs> you know. That's twenty year year twenty eight, and you know because it's an unending challenge, and there's goals are always going to be like maximum knowledge for every single student, and uh, without that happening, it does feel a bit. Uh, it does feel a bit daunting at times because you never get completely satisfied. I don't think any teacher, any good teacher is ever really satisfied. So in some way that's, that's also a little bit tough. Yeah, but partly um, I could say that, you know, I've taken time off of work in the last 20 years. Two, two times I took a year off, um, one to pursue. I became a salsa dancer, actually, <laughs> in my late 20s. Wasn't very good at it, uh, but I became a good teacher of it. And I did actually acrobatic dance within within salsa and became somewhat of a name. But when I was doing that, I took a year off of work. I was just like, huh, I'm actually missing something about connecting to making a difference in the world. Like you, you make a difference by doing a good show and teaching people uh, some moves, but you're not changing who they are. And I missed that. Um, so partly because I missed that, I went back to teaching, partly because I ran out of money. 
but I decided to uh, go back in my late twenties, and um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I love that. Who is your favorite person, and why? My favorite person is Artie Phillips. He passed away. When I've been asked who I'm grateful, what I'm grateful about. The only thing I can really say with my full heart without any problem is this guy who taught me how to lift and throw women in the air and catch them beautifully, how to make sure it's not a muscle move, but it's beautiful in itself. Um, he passed away, but he passed to me all of this knowledge, and I've passed his knowledge to thousands of people since then. So um, he is my favorite person, and I hold a picture of him with him on my altar, thanking him every day, and I let everybody know who works with me, this is the man you're really learning from tell, tell me more about salsa dancing like what was it that got you into it why why did you want to do it and and how's that going for you still yes salsa boy if you say something i'm grateful for i am so happy that salsa entered my life um it rescued me you know because uh, i i discovered it when i was uh went to guatemala back in uh, 1994, I think it was, 93, 94, in the summer to learn Spanish because uh, a bunch of my students' parents only spoke Spanish. And when I would call them up, I'd tell them their kids are acting up and the kid would translate. And I know they were not telling them what I really was saying. <laughs> and I was like, all right, if I'm going to be effective with these parent phone calls home, I need to learn something. So I did this intensive when I was out there. And I went to a club one night. I saw this really ugly guy dance with all these beautiful women. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I, this I have to learn. I, I don't know anything about the music, but I do know that this guy's doing, doing pretty well. And so I came back to New York City, uh, went with a friend of mine to a, to a club where they're offering free classes. And I took four or five classes every week for four straight years. Um, and I could tell you, I wasn't good. In fact, I was so bad that one of the teachers kicked me out of class after one year because he said, I don't want you representing my school. You, you, you look terrible. And and I did. <laughs> you know, I did look terrible. I could lead someone pretty well, but, you know, everybody else looked uh, beautiful. I, I, I didn't. And uh, he said, you can come back when you look better. So I used to, like, stand outside the door every single night for a month just practicing movement. And after a month, I asked, I begged him, I said, I beg, please let me back. And he said, all right, show me, show me what you have. And I kind of moved the shoulders a little bit, I moved the hips a little bit. And he goes, no, you're still terrible, but all right. Just, he said, but, but when you go out, don't, don't say you're from my school. He said, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, all right, man, whatever you say, you know, but it gave me the, the ability to um, connect with, with people and I learned to love the music. Um, and then there's this just phenomenal genre of 60s and 70s music, Fanny All Stars is the, is the label, that when you listen to it, it touches the soul. And that gave me a level of pleasure that, you know, I, I often think about the way I'm going to die. And I'm pretty sure I want some 70s funny all-stars music playing as they put my casket down, you know. And I know that that's eternal. You reach something eternal when you do that. And people, when you, you dance well with somebody else, you're experiencing it together. So, yeah, it was interesting. I did that in my 20s. I was, they called me Mambo Night because I went out every night of the week. I, I take dance classes and then dance at 2 or 3 in the morning. Yeah, if you're wondering whether my job suffered, yes, it did. It was... It wasn't wasn't easy, um, but it was my twenties, so I could do it. I, I I love the idea of you going into work, 
your your employer thinking, is this guy hungover? Like, what's what's going on with him? And you're like, sorry, I've been out all night salsa dancing. You know, like, I just love that. That's just glorious, I think. It was. And it was just the best way to live. And it was odd. You know, I lived with my brother at the time. And he would say, hey, how many women are you hooking up with? And I go, none. But I danced with, like, 20 different women. And to him, he looked down on me. But for me, I was just like, oh, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get this 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 thing I've had. And it's not just me, the women too, they 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 all go out uh, just wanting a connection that, that happens on the floor. Now, mind you, that's for the dancing spots. There are lots of people who go out dancing who are just looking to hook up. Um, and I'm always up for that too, but uh, I don't really, I'm not really so good with the words. So that really didn't happen too much once in a while, not too much. And the scene was a little bit tough, you know, like uh, I remember dancing going one and I was the only, only white guy <laughs> at all these clubs as well. Um, so I was a bit of a target, especially um, people. Uh, I remember I got spit on. I, I, I would get people. Yeah, it was it was not so easy. And then when I would ask people to dance, you know, it's a guy's thing. They would ask the women to dance. They all said no, all of them, you know, so I'd had to learn. I used to like dance with a, uh, a family and against his grandmother first. And then the grandmother's like, okay, dance with my daughter. I was like, yes, I dance with that one daughter. And then like, they'd see us, all right, this white guy can dance all right, you know? And uh, and then then, I, then I'd be good for the rest of the night. But some other nights I wouldn't have that opportunity. And I had a deal with a friend of mine. I'd say, look, we get 10 people saying no. And until you get the 10th person, you gotta keep asking, you know? Kind of like a salesman, you, have, you, you build up the uh, internal, the cold calls are tough. But they make you tough and then make you confident. Say, look, I got these skills. I know what I'm going to do. And I'm going to work hard to show that I can show somebody a good time, you know. And uh, sometimes it's a little rough. I remember one girl, she, um, you know, when you bring somebody across the body, uh, it's very similar to feeling for a woman as a dip. And she wanted to show off because she saw me dance with somebody else. So every time I brought her across my body, she dipped herself. And uh, I was like, oh boy, she did it twice. I was like, uh, I, I tried to redirect her. The time I tried to redirect her, she dipped and fell on my fell on my feet. And then, you know, back then, if you look funny, people would roll their eyes at you. Not only did I look funny, she, I fell, I rolled over and I got the hell out of there. <laughs> <I just ran laughs> right out the door, you know? This is uh, Latin quarters in the late nineties, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was funny. And I was at that point, I was going to give up. I was like, I'm done with this salsa dancing thing. I was too embarrassed. But I forced myself, man. I said, you know, I put too much time into this. I can't give up. That was a Thursday night, I think. I went back Friday night. I saw the girl. I asked her to dance. And I was surprised, man, because she, she was beautiful and, and a good dancer. And she said, yeah, just don't roll me on the floor this time. <laughs> I said, fine. Do whatever you want. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny. There, there, there are a few times I almost gave up. That was one of them. There's another time I, uh, another time um, when I first I had this wonderful girlfriend. The very first time we did a show at my school, I busted out all these moves, like five minutes of, of great moves. And I saw myself on video. I was on a dance team at the time. And I thought to myself that I was going to, I thought I would be looking like some of these other people. Back then, we didn't have videos. It was, you know, it was rare to see ourselves move. In fact, impossible. No, no, almost impossible. But anyway, got a camcorder. Somebody showed it to me. And the moment I saw myself, I was like, oh, this was after like seven years of dancing. And I said, I'm terrible. And I was like, I thought I was better than I was. I believed in myself. But, you know, sometimes believing yourself is a problem when the reality doesn't match your beliefs, you know. And when I saw that, I called my uh, dance teacher 
and said, I'm, I'm giving up, I'm done. And he spent uh, the next three days talking to me for three, four hours a day, convincing him, convincing me not to give up. And it was only on the third day I said, All right, I'll keep trying, but I'm not doing any more shows. Um, sure enough, he, he, he had faith in me. And, you know, I wasn't that good of a dancer. Um, but what he did have me do was specialize in lifts. That I was good at. And him and his wife were having some problems. So he said, look, why don't you lift my wife? And so we do these shows where all the all these dance uh, couples would look beautiful. I'd come in the middle, throw his wife in the air. She'd flip in the air. I'd catch her. Crowd would go crazy. And I'd walk off the stage. And I became a tour. I did touring like that around the world. Not, not too many places, but a few places. And that was my thing for like a few years. And I kind of realized, you know what? I need to give up this dancing thing. Why don't I just do the acrobatics? I found, uh, and I was like, at the time I worked with a bunch of many, many dancers, like over 20 dancers at shows with. And I was just like, it doesn't really make sense for me to train a salsa dancer to do acrobatics. Let me find an acrobatic person to dance, uh, to dance salsa. Found a uh, woman who does uh, circus, who's interested in salsa. Uh, eventually we got married. Um, and we rocked the scene like nobody's business. Like we would get maybe loud applause after the, and any show I did before this, but the show I did with Zoe, we'd get standing ovations. That actually, uh, and that propelled us to say, you know, let's try America's Got Talent. And my favorite uh, story is uh, we tried out the second season. We didn't, you know, there's 10,000 people, Jacob Javits Center. Um, in the beginning, you're, it's, it's a cold call. We didn't get beyond the associate to associate producer round in that second season. I know it's crazy. But in that fourth season, we did almost the same routine, that's slightly better. And then that one, we made the semifinals. And um, we, we made four rounds. Uh, they loved us. People know us as like, the, she's 100 pounds. Back then, I was two. Two, 240, maybe 250, and depending on what I ate in the morning. And then she would lift me over her back. You know, that was our big trick. And um, when uh, we, we did pretty well with that. And that was like I was just saying earlier, I, you know, it's funny. We had this almost, we almost, I, th I thought we could have won it. There was this uh, moment when, um, when we were, the producer was telling us, hey, look, you're going to do well. And we were preparing for this trick where I spin her over my head with one finger. And the only problem is if we do it in the semifinals, we wouldn't have a finals. And I thought, all right, let's do whatever for the semis. We're good. We didn't, we didn't make it. Um, and what was crazy is we were going to spin her over my one finger to, uh, what's that guy who did Dirty Dancing? Now I'm forgetting his name. Patrick Swayze, is that his name? Um, I think that's his name. He died that day. And then we would have did his song and, like, commemorated him with a one-finger lift. So, yeah, so... I have that regret to this day that we didn't get to do that. But um, I did call the producer uh, a few few weeks ago and said, hey, look, can we do that one move? And he said, uh, call me in October. We'll see. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. We'll yeah. See. Well, this episode will be airing in, I think, January is when this one's supposed to come out. So I guess I guess hopefully we'll know. Oh, that'd be so exciting. Vote for me. Yeah. At this point, I'll be on TV, man. You know, <laughs> check check me check check me out. I if if uh, yeah, that'd be great. I, I hope so. We'll see. We'll see. How would you summarize your life in one sentence and why? Uh, strange jerk. Oh, I know. <laughs> I have a poster right over there that says "Not a fairy tale life." <laughs> and I say I wrote that actually after I got divorced. I really didn't want to get divorced, and I love the person. She loves me, and yet we fought so much. And I wanted that more than anything. And when I 
kind of just admitted that life wasn't going to go the way I wanted it to go, despite many things going well, kind of describes my life in a lot of ways, because it wasn't a fairy tale beginning, wasn't a fairy tale middle, and I'll, I'll do my best to make it a fairy tale ending, but there are no guarantees for sure. Okay, so now I want to see a bit more about your present. What What is it that you're doing now? I mean, you're talking about hopefully going back to America's Got Talent. What else are you up to? You've written books. You've talked about what's going on. Yeah, I think the only reason I got a chance to go back to America's Got Talent is I have a new story. Um, last year in 2020 in March, uh, I contracted COVID. My brother was sick for a week and he was fine. I got it from him and I was in the hospital for three months and in a coma for 32 days. And uh, I was the sickest person at the hospital at the time. And so uh, I've been through hell, man. <laughs> I've been through hell. Like this past, I, I made it through, I made it back, but uh, I lost all my muscles. Uh, the good news is I lost a lot of weight, lost 75 pounds. The bad news is all that was muscle. That apparently when you're uh, in a coma, they, your muscle goes first. So it was weird. I, I woke up and I couldn't move anything and could just, just move my eyes. And one year later, um, I'm doing most of the things I used to be able to do. So I called the producer and said, hey, can we, uh, is this comeback story, is this going to work for you? And he said, well, we have a few COVID comebacks. You know, it's like, a, you know, they, they probably have a few other people, but he said, maybe in October. But I did write a book about the experience called A COVID Story. Um, and anybody who'd be interested, just email me at davidparisbooks.com. It'd be my pleasure to share it. And um, coming back, it actually woke me up. That experience, um, you know, I, I got divorced, unfortunately, from my dance partner. Um, she went out to circus school and didn't come back. <laughs> Basically, she wanted to pursue a different level of entertainment. I love just getting people to say, wow. She wanted people to say, why? You know, we were like on two different uh, uh, performance tracks, you know. Um, we're still good friends now, and, and, and now we support each other, but it's a rough marriage. I felt really bad, man. Like in my late 40s, I was just like trying to trying to still do that life I used to have traveling around the world after getting some America's Got Talent fame and um, not really getting it. And I thought, all right, I had a good life, so be it. When I came face to face, and <laughs> I had a dream, man. When I was in the coma, I was face to face with the Buddha. The Buddha told me, you're going to die. And I was like, no, <laughs> I thought I wanted to die, but it actually turned out no way, no chance. And I was just like, oh, I'm not dying. No way. And he told me, hey, look, if you're going to live, you're going to have to fight harder than you ever had yourself uh, had, had in your life. And I said, all right, uh, whatever it takes, because I'm not dying. And I've kept that energy, man. So like since waking up, you know, there are things like, geez, I've been massively selfish. I've been like uh, just looking out for myself for all these years. Uh, yeah, I'm a teacher, but I do it for myself. You know, I, I'm interested in people's growth, uh, but I want to still like do something that's like fascinating. It doesn't come from love. It comes from ambition. And I really, when I was sitting there in the hotel, in the hotel room, <laughs> that's funny, in the hospital room, I, I got a taste of that. It's like, I've lived a selfish life. Since then, I'm, I think, I hope, um, I'm shifting into just what it, what does it mean to connect to my dance partner? What does it mean to be nicer to my mother? What does it mean to enjoy the relationships rather than seeing every relationship as a goal for my own ambition? And that came to me because uh, life gave me a big wrench and said, uh, you're, you're on the wrong path, man. And what is your life when you wake up and you're by yourself? I got to really take a look at that. I really like that. I really like that. And I 
you know, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about, you know, the, the way that we vibe and the way that we connect. And I, I, think, I, I, I think we're fascinated by so many of the same things. So I feel like this conversation could go on forever. But of course, we're running out of time here. And you just led it into the last question I ask every guest and you led it into it so perfectly. And that is thinking now to the end of your life, when you look back on everything, what are the things you expect you'll be most proud of? Yeah, I love that. I, I'm i pretty sure I'm going to be able to rework my life. If you asked me that a year ago, it would have been different. I, you know, I have a lot of ambitions. I want to be able to write a better critical thinking curriculum for kids. I want one of the things I discovered is that if you work with kids' life goals and just teach them to get things that they want, you'll teach them the skills that they can achieve anything. Um, so I've been working on a curriculum for that for three years. And uh, ideally, that, that comes out in both uh, uh, an app and also uh, for the schools, and perhaps it, it can be combined. But if anything, on a personal level, what I want for me um, as a creative writer, I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean if I'm, on, if I'm in my grave? And if I give my all and figure out what does it mean to love every moment, and I live as a hedonist, not a hedonist doing things that are going to be destructive to my body, but a hedonist in terms of I'm going to enjoy this movement. I'm going to enjoy that I'm here feeling safe. I'm going to enjoy noticing how many people are supporting my life. I'm going to enjoy the connections. If I can, it's a goal. I can't say I'm definitely going to do that because I have to undo really about 48 years of thinking of myself and, and always thinking I happiness was in the future. But um, from a personal level, I want to I want to die knowing that I found pleasure in every moment possible. Not my own pleasure, mind you, but pleasure in whatever form is is, is healthiest for me in the world. And then two, I want to leave a mark with, man, I wrote two books already for Laughable Legends, uh, books for kids. I want to do 10. <laughs> like, if I leave 10, like, you know, hers for who wrote tin, the Tintin series or something like this, leaving a mark artistically that moves people, I'm going to enter that grave with salsa music knowing that I did good. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that moment. I love that. I really love that. And uh, I guess with that, I just want to say thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. Great to see you again. Uh, you're awesome. And thank you so much for giving me this, this uh, forum. And thank you, not just for listening to and supporting the show, but for listening to the people around you. David and I chatted for another half hour after this episode because we both had a pretty open evening. We talked more about near-death experiences and how their trauma continued to affect us. Think, if you listen intently to the people around you, you might just make a new friend like I did in recording this. The music used in this program is by Garrett Vandenberg. I highly recommend you check out his work, which I have linked in the show notes. Everything else was by me, Alex Williams. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a review, share with a friend, follow us on Instagram, or support my work on Patreon. Links to all of that and more are in the show notes. And remember, to make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. <laughs>